I love it when Tennessee Tech is in town. I love it when people yell. It's good to see you. If I've not met you, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'd love to meet you after the service. I mean that. Hey, if you have a Bible, turn to, turn to John 19, and we are going to finish the 19th chapter today. We uh, are still walking through the book of John in a series that we call Hero. We've been doing it for about 40-something weeks now, and we have timed this whole series to culminate in the Easter story next week, so it's worked. <laughs> I mean, this was the last chance we'd have for it to screw up, and it hasn't screwed up. So next week we get to talk about an empty tomb. Today we're going to talk about one that is not empty, okay? So go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're going to read four verses, and then we're going to jump in. This is the 38th verse of John, which will show us Jesus more clearly, and therefore show us the church in this world more clearly as well. Verse 38, after these things... Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away, away the way the, the body permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths, with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Short passage, it's gonna be our passage for today. Every time I read this passage, it reminds me of whenever I was a, a brand new Christian, um, I became a Christian in my, the end of my first senior year, so I was kind of dovetailing out of college. Campus ministry um, was really big in my life and was responsible for bringing the gospel to me, and I was in school to be a physician, and so towards the end of my degree plan, I was taking a lot of classes on evolutionary biology. It was actually going to be my minor. And I was sitting in a class listening about evolution, as I had so many days before, but now some of the things I was hearing were starting to grind on me, right? Now, before I was a Christian, I would hear a lot of smack talk from the professor on if God was so smart, then why does this look like this over here, and why does this rock look like a rock, and you know, maybe the church is dumb because they don't understand this. A lot of church bashing, a lot of Jesus bashing, which before Jesus, I just didn't really care. But now, as the gospel was taking root and I was growing in the Lord, I started to care, right? And I'll never forget it. I was talking to my son about this over breakfast this morning. I'll never forget the day where I stood up in class for the first time and barked something out because I just could, t I could take it no longer. And it was, a, it was a professor who was always throwing a grenade at the church. He'd look for ways. He'd swerve his teaching to, to take a jab at the church or Jesus or whatever. And I remember a passage that I had in Bible study that morning, and it just rose to the top. There was about 50 people in the class. And I remember standing up and saying, for the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And that's all that came out. I didn't even know what that meant. 
I, and so, and I, and I threw a Bible passage in there to cite it, to give it credibility, but it was totally the wrong passage. I said like Isaiah, Isaiah 92, which I don't even think there are 92 chapters. And I remember it, you could hear pins and needles drop. Everyone just stopped. I mean, breathing stopped. And I don't remember what happened back, and then there was a little bit of back and forthing between me and the professor. It ended in me getting kicked out of the class, right? Four more professors and several more times I would get kicked out of class before I managed to walk across the stage and get my degree, right? Um, and it was in that time that I fell in love with Jesus, fell in love with the gospel. We started a campus ministry on that small little school in West Texas, maybe only seven or 8,000 students. And to my understanding, it was the first campus ministry ever started in the history of that college campus, right? Lost the respect of my peers, um, totally lost the respect of the professors. I was a little bit blackballed, definitely labeled an idiot. Which, you know, and now as a side, because we have so many students in the room, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail. Feel free to call out all the triple PhDs or all the brilliant people that are saying dumb things. It's totally fine. It's totally fine to do that, right? Remember, you're in college, you're paying their salary, so it's okay for you to stand up if they say something that sounds dumb, all right? You might not want to do it in the middle of class. Mason, you can clean that up later. <laughs> might not want to do that. But here's my question for you today. Could you possibly be in a place where you are being led to trust and obey Jesus and identify yourself as a Christian, but you suspect that once you do, and once you are courageous and you cross that line, nothing will ever be the same again? Are you in a place like that now? I mean, your normal just won't be normal ever again. You know, those were costly moments for me in school. I wanted medical school so bad I could taste it. And I really wanted the respect of my peers. And I, I definitely wanted to keep the respect I had from the professors. I enjoyed the friends I had. Those were costly days. And, and, and I had a rudimentary, very infantile understanding. It was a small understanding of what it meant to trust God. But this was the big lesson I knew even from the early days. The big lesson is, is if trusting is easy, then it is not costly. And if it's costly, you can bet it won't be easy. You can bet it won't be easy. If you hear people boast about how easy it is to trust and obey the Lord, you need to tell them to step their game up because they're playing small and they're obviously trusting in areas that aren't calling them into danger. Because the obedience I see and the trusting I see in the Bible, it costs people's lives. It fills tombs which is where we are going to find ourselves today. One, one of the benchmarks um, as a quote that I find in the Bible that, that I found early in the early days, and I remember reading it as a young Christian and just kind of stuck to the ribs, is whenever Thomas, when he was with Jesus and he was with Team Jesus, and they realized they were all going to go to Lazarus's tomb, where Lazarus is in a tomb, right? And I remember reading the passage for the first time, understanding how much danger that would cause for them. I mean, there was really danger waiting for them because the Pharisees were really riled up. And Thomas, of all of them, Thomas saying, let us go that we may die also. Let us go that we may die also. You know, often I find that when I truly identify myself with Jesus and trust in Jesus and obey Jesus, that a lot of times it just means dying a little bit inside to this world around me. Maybe that's where this passage is going to find you. Today may be a good day for you because our hero is leading us from inside of a tomb, okay? 
So let's look at John 19.38. We're going to go through it a little bit slower because there's some details here you may not know about these two men that we're kind of meeting and highlighting in this passage. The 38th verse says this, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Okay, so Joseph of Arimathea is introduced here. Now, Mark and Luke both they also speak of Joseph. Joseph, they would say, is a righteous disciple who actually was looking forward to the kingdom of God coming, and he was also part of that high council, that Sanhedrin council, but he was one of the dissenting votes. So whenever they would vote to destroy Jesus, he would say, nay, not into it. I don't agree with this, which will mark you. That'll put a mark on your chest, and that's literally what happened. Now, what's interesting in this is Mark, if you were to read that passage, Mark says that Joseph of Arimathea gathered courage whenever he went to approach Pilate. But here, the passage says that he did it in secret out of fear, which means that he was somewhere between courage and fear, which sounds about right, doesn't it? I mean, the Bible's realistically describing an emotion. If you can just focus on that, it's describing a feeling that we all understand and that we all have, what it means to be courageous, yet fearfully courageous. You get that. I get that. In fact, I'll contend that there's no other kind of courage. No other kind of courage besides the one that is mingled with great fear. I mean, the greatest acts of courage, when you just you feel like a champion, aren't they also the times where you feel like you're going to wet your pants? They happen at the same time. If you feel courageous or see yourself as courageous, but there's no fear on the radar, you're probably overselling it, right? I think also noteworthy here is that Joseph is in Pilate's chamber. That's a volatile place to be right now. Because if you've been following the story with us, these Pharisees have been really making life difficult on Pilate, painting him in a corner. He doesn't want to kill Jesus. He doesn't even want anything to do with Jesus. And they keep pushing it and pushing it. He's still rocking the migraine from the entire last chapter where they were incredibly inconvenient, and now another one wants to come and spend time with him. It'd be like being audited for a week. And then the very next day when the IRS is gone, you're getting a phone call from the IRS who would like to have a meeting with you. That's basically what's going on right here. And then Joseph does something, which is interesting, but it might not come across as of much interest at first glance, and that is that Joseph is asking for the body. That's uncharacteristic. And this is why. Typically when a criminal is hung on a cross and they are dead, they put them in a communal grave kind of just for criminals, Right? Because if you're a criminal, you don't get to be buried by grandma. Right. Because you're a criminal, you're going to stain all of the non-criminal burial plots. And so you would be dumped into this communal field with a bunch of other criminals unless a family, your family, would come and petition to take your body back into like a family tomb or a family graveyard or something like that. That's how it happened, except in the case of sedition. Now, in that case the family did not get to go and call on and retrieve that body. The body was left in the field for vultures to come and totally distinguish and pull every shred of dignity away from that person, which is what the Pharisees wanted to happen here. They didn't want Jesus to have 
any dignity. So you have Pilate talking to Joseph, and I can, now listen, this is not in the Bible. This is what I think happened, right? If I ever write a commentary, I might put something in here like this. But I have a feeling that Pilate is looking to stick it to the Pharisees a little bit because they've been such a problem. So what Joseph wants to do is take the body to do what? Bring honor and dignity to Jesus. He wants to honor Jesus and and bring dignity to the whole life lived in death. And so Pilate, in my mind, is saying, wait, 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 you want that body? Yes, I want that body. (laughs) Will it stick it to all the Pharisee nerds? Yes, it will. You can have him. What do I sign? You can take him away. I think that's what happens. Anyway, next verse. Nicodemus, verse 39, also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Okay, new character, Nicodemus. Now, he was also a dissenter, and he is also one who wanted Jesus to not be destroyed and stood up for him in council meetings. And we actually have record of that. Probably worked a couple cubicles down from Joseph. They most likely knew each other. In fact, we see that earlier in the book of John, there was a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. It actually just kind of noted it here in this passage. But that was at night. Because Nicodemus wanted to hear from teacher Jesus and wanted to receive from Jesus, but he didn't want to get busted for it. He didn't want his neighbors to see him sneak out. Didn't want his neighbors to even know what was going on. So he sneaks in by night, and he sneaks back out. Right? We're seeing a theme here. But then later on in verse 7, or chapter 7 rather, whenever they're deciding we're going to destroy Jesus, it is Nicodemus that stands up and says, wait, 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 wait. This feels like we're fumbling justice a little bit. We're about to kill this guy. Shouldn't he, like, get a shot? Shouldn't he be here to say something? And then they make fun of him, and that little part of the story ends. So while Joseph is with Pilate getting paperwork signed, Nicodemus is quickly trying to get myrrh. This is interesting. Remember, this is the day before Passover. This is the day of preparation. The closest thing I can think of in our culture today is this would be like the day before Christmas, right? A big day the next day, most everything will be shut down. So if you've got to go to Kroger to get little K-cups, you know, for the holidays or whatever for your career, you've got to do it the day before Christmas. <laughs> Don't do it on Christmas Day. You'll, you'll get your heart broke. So everybody's out shopping. Everybody's out doing the things that they usually do to get ready for a big festive day. And he's going to go out and get 75 pounds of myrrh. Most scholars believe that hardly anyone, even kings, would keep that much myrrh laying around. So we know we had to pick it up. We know we had to shop. And all of this is happening quickly. So it's almost like they had a little meeting. You go talk to Pilate, I'll go find the myrrh. And that's what he's doing. And a lot of it, 75 pounds. I mean, you need a buddy to carry that, right? That's a lot. Now, what myrrh was used for was not embalming, right? Because they didn't believe in that. What it was used for was like an air freshener. It would keep the smell of death down. What they would do is they would grind it up and mix it with the aloes, rub it all over the corpse. What myrrh is, is it's actually a gum resin that comes from a wounded tree. So you'd wound a tree, it would leak a sap, that's actually myrrh. It would turn kind of hard, like you see saps do sometimes. They would break it up and export it. It was actually very, very, very expensive. In fact, I did a little bit of research 
because even during that time, much similar to this time, myrrh was not really produced right there in the ancient world that, that this story finds itself in. Where you got myrrh was Ethiopia, India, and Egypt. Those were the three major exporters of myrrh. It still happens to be the same today, interestingly enough. So I did a little research because you could still find myrrh in bulk, and I wanted to see how much it would cost to get 75 pounds of myrrh sent to my doorstep. And it was pretty amazing what I found because there's a pretty wide variance. It could cost between 8000 or 32000 right? I guess there's sketchy knockoff myrrh out there. You got to really be careful on the myrrh market. But most of the legitimate sites that I found, it was closer to $30,000, $32,000, which you can get a Camaro for that. It's a lot of myrrh. That's expensive. Now, these guys had the money for it, but you don't spend five digits on something that you don't value or find to be significant. You know this turned heads. You know this got the attention of the people around them. I'm going overboard to show you that we have a picture of two men that are growing in courage. They're letting go of this world as they grab hold of one that is coming. And they knew that if trusting is easy, it's not costly. And if it's costly, you can bet it won't be easy. And they know a second thing as well that a messenger is not above the master. A disciple is not above the teacher. That they are cut after their heroic teacher, and if the master found a tomb, well, then they may as well. I could hear Thomas's words probably in their head, let us go that we may die also. In fact, stay where you're at right now, but just a few chapters back in chapter 13, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, which means I'm not lying, <laughs> I'm not playing around. This is the truth, what I'm about to say. A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Friends, that is not a light statement. That is not some Buddhist truthism. That means that what Jesus went through, we can surely bet will come to us. We are not above him. We are sent. He is the sender. We are the disciple. He is the discipler. Okay, let me finish this passage. Look in verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spice, spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was at close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Okay, so there's the passage. And we get to fix our attention on a tomb with a Jesus in it. Right? Most of the time when we talk about the tomb, we talk about it as an empty tomb or a vacant tomb. But this occupied tomb says different things to different people. Think about what it says to Pilate the next day. I can imagine it saying, hey, this is a little bit on you. you got some blood on your hands. You signed off on the murder of an innocent man, and he's rotting in a tomb right now. If that doesn't come back and get you, it might come back and get you. What does it say to the Pharisees? I think they were high-fiving each other. I think it was telling them, good, finally, we did it. Now things can go back to normal. And don't feel too bad because we all already agreed that it's better for one man to take a dive so that the whole nation can prosper, right? I wonder what it said to the public. I think the empty tomb, or not the empty tomb, but the occupied tomb, the very full tomb, it says it looks like Jesus was not the real deal after all. After all the miracles, top-shelf teaching, he's dead now. And by the way, where are all of his followers? It looks like they're gone as well. 
right? What about his beloved disciples? What did an occupied tomb say to them? What's going on? Wait a minute. Hold on a second. I mean, I know he was talking crazy a little bit from time to time, but we didn't see this happening. We thought there was going to be a governmental overthrow. We thought a new kingdom was going to come crashing into this kingdom and everything would change. Now we're just confused. And what am I going to do now? But then we have these guys, Joseph and Nicodemus. And I can imagine them seeing an occupied tomb and saying, I think it's time for us to look like our teacher and let go of this world a little bit. Let us also go that we may die also. This will be costly. All glory to God. And I don't think they said that without some fear. Without some fear in their heart. Because before the tomb was empty, with this victorious glow of resurrection on it, it was full. It was full. It was confusing and gloomy and sad. And you and me, we know what happens next. We actually are going to celebrate it next week. We know what happens next. And Jesus even spoke of it. Again, stay where you're at, but in John 12, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, I'm not lying, I'm telling you the truth. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's speaking of himself. He's sowing himself into the ground. And the fruit that comes of it is the gospel good news, the good news for mankind, that God has been so sweet to mankind through the person of Jesus that all of broken, all of broken creation, all of broken creation is redeemed at God's great cost, at our great benefit. And I think my favorite part about these two unlikely disciples following through and actually trusting and obeying is they didn't do it when everything looked brilliant and the tomb was empty. They did it now. And the tomb is full. Uh, Jesus isn't walking through any shut doors yet. He's not out there cooking fish on a beach yet. You know what I'm saying? He's not in some vision. I mean, that, that would be one thing. That's what we get to see. They didn't get to see that. They see something totally different. I think if anything, an occupied tomb says, it says that to trust God is costly. I think the commentary when you have a tomb with Jesus in it, is that there's a real cost. Christianity, believing, trusting, obeying God has a real cost. That if the decision is easy, it's not costly. And if it is costly, you can bet it won't be easy. I think it also tells us that to let go of this world requires courage, and that courage will be mingled with fear. I mean, can we just, on that thought, just for a minute, we can all admit that when Jesus obeyed and when Jesus trusted, it was perfect. Not a hitch in his step. Perfect. It's not like that with our trust and our obedience. <laughs> I mean, when we trust and obey, we stutter, we drag our feet. It takes us 10 times longer to do it than it really ought to. That's the way it is for me anyway. And it's because we can see the consequences coming. So we just take forever. In fact, I find when I make hard, costly decisions... They don't always look so bold. They don't always look so visibly admirable. I kind of limp into it. I kind of trip my way into it. But these men seem to show me what that looks like a little bit more accurately because they're hovering between hesitancy and boldness. Mark says he has courage. John says he's a little bit freaked out. I think both are true. I think both are me. And I think both are you. 
I think this is where it all comes down. This is the tension for the growth of a disciple. This is what growth looks like. That moment where courage comes, but then fear comes, where hesitancy comes, but then there's boldness, and you want to obey, and you want to trust, but then there's this big price tag, and you don't know, and you wrestle, and you do it anyway. That's where we grow. That's where disciples grow. It's our arena where we let go of one world, and we grab the other. You know, there's this common phrase. It's becoming more and more common between me and Dr. Clint and some of the people. We, we have a Thursday morning Bible study, a men's Bible study at his house. By the way, we're taking a couple more people. If you're interested in that, we might let you in. That is a great Bible study, right? But one phrase that comes about that we are starting to use more and more is the, is the phrase thin places, thin places. It's an old Celtic phrase, actually from Celtic Christianity. And the concept is a thin place is where heaven kind of collapses into earth a little bit, and it feels like the space between our world and another world is very, very, very thin, right? It could be a beautiful place. It could be you just saw a miracle. It could be anything, really, that you just feel. You can kind of feel it in the air. You know what I'm saying? Like, man, this is special ground. We're in a special place. This is not a common moment, This is what Eric Viner says at the New York Times. He's actually written on what he calls thin places. He says, I'm drawn to places that beguile and inspire, sedate and stir, places where for a few blissful moments I loosen my death grip on life and I can breathe again, right? So here's an example. The Charlotte Airport is a thick place. (laughs) If you've ever been there, Listen, spend twice on the ticket to avoid touching down there at all. Go by Charlotte. Don't go through Charlotte. That's, that's doing life wrong. You're too young. You've got your full life in front of you. It's a difficult airport. Things beeping behind me, the carts all the time, terminal after terminal after terminal after terminal, TSA lines, the smell of cheap food coming from the food court. It's just a thick place. I'm pretty sure God is not there, right? Pretty sure. But a thin place. I mean, dads, moms, when our kids are born, it feels thin, doesn't it? It feels thin. Have you ever seen a miracle before? I have seen miracles before. You just, it feels like you're more measured with your words, right? Have you ever led somebody to Jesus and cried with them? Boy, it's a thin place. That's a very, very thin place. Why am I telling you that? I think the place where fear meets courage, I feel like that's a thin place. It's not as glorious. It doesn't get the press. But I think this, that place where we let go of one world and we grab hold of another is a thin place. And how did these men find this thin place? Fearfully courageous, but knowing that their lives would never be the same again. They didn't know that their lives, I mean, for all they know, I mean, they're probably kicked out of the council not sure the council's super excited about having them around. They might not get to trade or, or have commerce like they used to. Their homes might not be there. They might find a prison cell. They might lose their life, for all they know, right? I think the clue to this question is actually in the text we just read, talking about a garden. There's a garden in there. You see, if we were to look at like a biblical theology, and biblical theology is where you trace a theme, right, through the narrative of of the Bible. That's not what it totally is, but that's a part of biblical theology. There's a first garden, 
It's the garden that is set in the place of Eden where our first father, Adam, was. And he totally, totally disobeyed and did not trust. So a second Adam had to come in Jesus, right? Now, he found himself in another garden. And the garden that Jesus found himself in, this garden of Gethsemane, was a place where he travailed and he prayed and he what? He trusted and he, and he obeyed perfectly so it would upend the garden of Adam. And now we have a third garden, one with a tomb in it. And that speaks of something different. It shows us the consequences of trust because he's really dead and he's really in that tomb. You see, the garden of Gethsemane, it takes the Garden of Eden and it flips it. In the Garden of Eden, you have a perfect place with an imperfect man. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, not Eden, you have an imperfect place with a perfect man. And now we have a garden with a tomb in it where a perfect trust was exemplified by a perfect hero for imperfect us. It's really beautiful how the Bible puts it all together. Now, when all humanity comes about, when you, when you were born... You were born with the, we'll call it like spiritual genetics of first Adam, right? Can't help but to sin. You're headed straight for destruction and death. That's just part of our spiritual heritage, our spiritual bloodline. But then a second Adam comes, and that's the redeemed church that belongs to the second Adam. In the first garden, we're given death and sin. The second Adam, we are gifted with life. This is a little bit of what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll put it up on the on the screen, and if you can go ahead, yeah, go ahead and go forward one slide. One more, my bad. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Okay, go ahead one more. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those as well. This is an interesting passage because what it shows me is that I am a new creation making courageous decisions, fearfully courageous, but courageous decisions empowered by what? Empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? But I still have the residue of an old life. I still have residue of an old me making selfish decisions, disobedient decisions empowered by what? Empowered by the flesh. And when the flesh and the spirit start duking it out with each other and colliding with each other, we get a big picture of where we're at today. So in Galatians 5, it says this. This is Paul speaking to you and me. But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. This is interesting. Where the flesh and the spirit, where they, where they slam into each other, that is where trust and obedience is hard. This is where trust and obedience is hard. For me, this is a thin place. It's a thin place. It's where growth occurs. I can think of Nicodemus and Joseph on that day of preparation, going about their business in, in the flesh part of who they were, saying to them, don't do this. You're going to screw your whole career up. Things will never be the same again. They'll never look at you the same. You'll never make the same amount of money. You'll never have the same friends. Nothing will be the same. But I can also, I can also, I can also sense that the Spirit was telling them, let us go that we may die also. You can see that 
just it's so beautiful in this passage, courageous but very fearfully courageous. So what I'd like to do with the rest of the time I have with you is just look at the, when these moments find you, where you are called to trust and obey, but you don't really know how things are going to turn out. Encourage, this really isn't that easy to find, because maybe you resonate with Joseph, gathering courage to meet Pilate, but you're also fearful of what can happen to you, right? In fact, maybe you feel more fearful than faithful. You know what I mean? Because sometimes I'll make a decision and I'll almost halfway congratulate myself. Wow, I did it. I did the right thing. But then I remind myself, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to do the right thing. Yeah, but I followed through and I trusted. Yeah, but barely. I mean, it was razor thin. Yeah, but I honored Jesus. Yeah, but your heart was freaked out the whole time. You were scared. See, in my opinion, this is where we operate most of the time. Somewhere in between. Fearful and faithful. So what is it right now for you? And I hope you have an answer to that. What is it for you right now that is calling you into a dangerous place to trust and to follow through, but you are scared, frightened of where it can land you? Because this passage leads us. The tomb of Jesus has a hero in it before it does not. The tomb of Jesus has a hero in it before it does not telling us that there is a cost to trusting God, a real cost. Being a Christian is free from earning, but it is not free from dying, okay? You, you, can't, you can't work for it. You can't earn it. It is free from earning, but it is not free from dying and surrendering, not at all. So if you need courage, the biggest application is to beg the Holy Spirit that's usually the application for most of my sermons, by the way. Beg the Holy Spirit. Beg the Holy Spirit to lead you, to sift through all of your fear, help you see why you are afraid, to count the costs, not for what they will cost you, but count the costs in the light of the gospel, in the light of the gospel. And when you do, when you do obey and trust in a fearfully courageous way, I will promise you three things. This is what will happen to you. Number one, trusting the Lord will cost you greatly, and you likely will not see all of the dividends in this world. That's a promise. You might not see any dividends in this world, ever. Two, things will never be the same again. That's a promise. And three, you will grow and God will be glorified. And when you fail to trust and follow through, and I mean really fail, when you fail to do these things, you need to know that you are free from shame and all of his friends trying to convince you that Jesus loves you less because you're a failure, right? Because certainly, slow obedience is kind of the same thing as disobedience, right? And, and God's answer to slow obedience and total disobedience is kind of the same answer. It's grace, He's giving you favor and love totally despite your disobedience. He's giving you favor and love despite your slow, stuttering, decade after decade, slow obedience. He's giving you favor, love towards you, totally despite you. There's grace for the moments where I stall out in total fear. Grace for those moments. My failure doesn't remove God's smile from me or his position or his heart towards me, nor does it you. Because if you are faithless, Paul tells Timothy, he remains faithful. So you see, the reason I'm doing this 
little hairpin turn is because this cannot be a sermon where I say, look at these two cool guys and how courageous they were. Now you need to go out and be courageous like they're courageous. That would be a dorky sermon because first of all, they were brave, but they were barely brave. Can we admit that? Second of all, what they do with a dead body in a tomb, that's not the heroic action. The heroic action is Jesus sowing himself into the ground, putting himself in the tomb. He's the centerpiece for this sermon. He's the crown jewel of this passage. It's not these men. It's Jesus and what he has done. And that's good news for you and me. It's really good news. Because this passage shows us that a tomb has a price tag where we got a benefit and a price was paid. And now grace says you are free to totally fail. You are free. Listen, if you aren't free to fail, then the gospel's not the gospel. If you're not free to fail, then grace isn't grace. It just turned into legalism or something like that, some weird, dorky religion. But if you are free to fail, then that shows that God has loved you totally despite you. Now, that, that smells like the gospel, but you're also free to succeed. You're also free to win and to trust and to obey because you are not enslaved to the flesh anymore. That is where you came from, the first garden, but it's not where you're at right now. It's not who you are right now. I think some of you in this room right now are in a thin place. Courageous one moment, freaked out of your mind in the next moment because you know what's coming and you know that your normal will be upended never to be normal again. I will say welcome and congratulations, right? You are feeling the stretch marks of discipleship. It's a thin place. It's a very thin place. Some of you are in this room. Some of you are here and you are sinning, actively sinning because you're actively choosing not to trust and to not obey. You put it aside in your mind every time it comes up. Every time that thing that you do or are not doing comes up, you change the topic and the conversation in your mind because you can't even, you can't even sit to think about it for very long. You make excuses and convoluted reasons why it's okay for you to do that thing or not do that, oh, that, that thing. You, you think that you're an exception, like you're unique. You've probably even found some Bible passages that maybe sound like if you can twist them around enough that they might even back up what you're doing or not doing. And even right now, you're probably trying to convince yourself, I'm not talking to you actively. Now listen, the only application for you today is to repent because you have seen not just an occupied tomb, but an empty tomb. And the same Holy Spirit that raised our hero from the dead and folded those clothes and set them there, right there. That same Holy Spirit is alive in you. You were not enslaved to sin. So when you take communion, you need to repent and beg the Holy Spirit to give you the courage to obey and to trust. Join Joseph, join Nicodemus, be courageous, even if it's fearfully courageous. And then I feel like there's probably people in this room that they hear a sermon like this and they can't even conceive of a place in their life where trusting and obeying is even costly. I would again say to step your game up. Wake up. It's likely, statistically likely, that your neighbors back home, wherever you live, are far from Jesus. They're not just dying. They are spiritually dead they will not hear the gospel unless somebody preaches to them. 
85% of the city is in that place. Listen, man, missionaries are needed. Missionaries are needed. Churches have to be planted. I mean, hear me now. It's not an option. Church planting is not a bell or a whistle that is on some cooler churches. We have to plant churches. Right now, right now, we are not even planting enough churches to take care of the population growth of Knoxville. We can't even keep up with the rate of the city's growth. We have to plant. It's not an option. We have to plant churches. We've got to reach the campus. That is far from an option. That is the future direction of our entire culture. We have to do these things. We, 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 we have to give and give deeply to Syrian refugees. We have to pray for the homeless sleeping on Magnolia right now. We have to be active about our neighborhoods. We have to do these things. Disciples have to be made. That's not an option. The gospel must be preached. And these truths will cost us everything. So friend, if trusting God is easy for you, you are missing it. You must wake up. All of those things ought to be calling us into dangerous places where, yes, life will never be the same again. Never. Some of you maybe came here and today you find yourself very far from God. But your passions are being stirred. That feeling that you have of your passions being stirred, that's the dead person in you becoming alive, right? Now, if I wasn't a good theologian, I would tell you just to yield to it and to accept Jesus into your life. But listen, you don't have a choice. <laughs> what God wants, he gets. He's a hunter who never misses. And if he is quickening your heart right now to see your sin for the first time and to respond with joy and thanksgiving, it's going to happen. What I would say to you in this time is find somebody today. Find me today. I can't wait to meet you to maybe help you navigate through what we're talking about. Maybe it kind, of, kind of help you understand a little bit of what's going on as this heart of stone is ripped out and a heart of flesh is put in its place. Go ahead and stand with me. I've got to land this. We can land in a place of celebration, though, because soon, in this passage, death will be mocked. No smell of death. $32,000 worth of myrrh. It's just going to smell good, but it's not going to extinguish the smell of death because there won't be any. It's wasted money almost, isn't it? In fact, the only thing that's going to be buried that day is death itself. And that's good for you, and that's good for me. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you so much for being so sweet and so kind to us. Lord, even from the early days of my walk with you, you showing me how costly trust and obedience would be. Father, I know that there is not a single growth spurt in my Christian life that did not call me out on the ledge, that did not put me way out there where I knew that nothing would be the same again. And I don't just have stretch marks. I have scars because it was costly. And Father, I still don't have some of those friends back. I definitely don't have any of that respect and honor. I don't have, there's so many things I don't have. Lord, that we would be a church that would be able to let go of this world and to grab another. 
that we would recognize the thin places and the ground that we, that we walk on. And to know that heaven is scraping the pavement right now. And I'm being called out of this slumber, this stuttering, weak, hesitant disobedience. God, you are so good to us. Because even when we fail in these things, your hug does not get looser. And even when we fail in these things, your grace does not get diluted or watered down. Which just shows how beautiful you are. Lord, we thank you for an empty tomb. And I thank you for the picture and the narrative and the commentary that that full tomb says to me. There really is a cost. And because you paid it, I am very free to pay it now. Let me go that I may die also. Lord, let that be an echo in our hearts. Father, as we take communion, and as we worship, and as we, we think, and as we ponder, let repentance be in our heart for the places that we are slow to obey. Let there be repentance in our heart for, for not even seeing with good, clear eyes. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would even open up our eyes to see where we, where we are being called out, where people are dying all around us, where things are coming apart, where we could be active, where we could obey, where we could trust. You're so good, and you're so sweet, and we are so thankful. We worship you, and it's in your name we pray. Thank you, Bree. His work cleans you. His life.